slow down, you move too fast. You got to make the morning last. Just kicking down the cobblestones, looking for fun and feeling groovy. This morning, the green fists of the peonies are getting ready to break my heart as the sun rises, as the sun strokes them with his old buttery fingers, and they open. Pools of lace, white and pink, and all day the black ants climb over them, boring their deep and mysterious holes into the curls, craving the sweet sap, taking it away to their dark underground cities. And all day, under the shifty wind, as in a dance to the great wedding, the flowers bend their bright bodies and tip their fragrance to the air and rise their red stems holding all that dampness and recklessness gladly and lightly. And there it is again, beauty the brave, the exemplary, blazing open. Do you love this world? Do you cherish your humble and silky life? Do you adore the green grass with its terror beneath? Do you also hurry, half-dressed and barefoot, into the garden and softly and exclaiming of their dearness Fill your arms with the white and pink flowers, with their honeyed heaviness, their lush trembling, their eagerness to be wild and perfect for a moment before they are nothing forever. That is Mary Oliver in just spring when the world is mudluscious and petal wonderful, E.E. E. Cummings peon to spring and his this is the sun's birthday and this is the birthday of life and love and of wings and of the gay great happening illimitably earth on this easter sunday and this is our poetry slowdown radiomonterey.com i'm your host professor barbara mossberg with producer Zappa Johns, so excited to be with you today in this wild and wet time of year, drenched and falling down and rising up rivers and mountains, flowers, hearts. There are floods and blossoms. It's tremendous transitions. This is the week of the birthday of my life companion, the elusive woodsman, my own Natty Bumpo, and this is the time of year I learned spring, coming from Los Angeles to Indiana and at the same moment. So they are inextricably connected in my mind when I met my husband, walked with him in the rain and sleet and wind, and wrote him a poem, his birthday, our first date. So that was 45 years ago. And what I realize is that all my poems for him since reference his request to write me a poem where my consciousness of the poem itself 
since our first talk was about poetry, in fact, the merits of Rod McEwen, Listen to the Warm, Stanyan Street and Other Sorrows, and a play, Lead Wedding, by Garcia Lorca, who befriended and influenced and transformed Pablo Neruda. I'm going to share some of these poems with you on our theme of spring, yes, but also on love in spring. So there's wind and rain and budding of all kinds. And since it's his birthday coming, we're thinking we have to have a few poems about fishing and birds and lions and earth. The excitement of seeing tulips and daffodils and buds everywhere and will hear as poets wipe soil from their hands to pen their thoughts on the connections between the act of creating and co-creating truth and beauty out of earthly experience, between what is sown and grown and pruned and tended, between mortal and immortal beauty and hope. We'll hear from Horace, of course, Shakespeare, here, here, Thoreau, Chanticleer, Hill Crow, Emily Dickinson and her twin Wang, Gerard Manley Hawk, Hunt, too exuberant to be blunt, both on fish, Collins, Billy, hilarious but never silly, A.K. Railings, Calling, W.S. Merwin, Theodore Retke, not to mention Charles Trippy, yippee, James Wright, so right, Mary Oliver, we love her, Pablo Neruda, our own times Buddha, Gerald Stern, it's his turn, Yates, one of the greats, Stanley Kunitz, his tune is my bliss, and more galore score. So our show today. All that dampness and recklessness, gladly and lightly. And there it is again. Beauty, the brave, the exemplary, blazing open from Mary Oliver. And when the heart is rambunctious, raucous, nervy, when it's strident. And on that note, our music, Morton Loriston, sure on the shiny note. And it goes, sure on this shiny night of star-made shadows round, kindness must watch for me this side of the ground. The late year lies down the north, all is healed, all is health. High summer holds the earth, hearts all whole. Sure, on this shiny night, I weep for wonder, wandering far alone of shadows on the stars.
That's Morton Lauriston, sure, on this shiny night. And we'll hear Withered Hand, New Gods. We'll hear Eric Clapton, uh, Creams, Sunshine, or Love. We'll hear Winter Blackberries, Connie Eleanor. And uh, we will hear how her composition is named after the title of the autobiography of Margaret Mead Winter Blackberries. And Connie Ellis' song is that we'll hear is Blackberry Winter. And she's the one who says the heart is rambunctious, raucous, nervy, solicitous, strident. Love that. And we may hear some Van Morrison. So let's begin with fishing and what it is to be a person who loves fishing and you want to share it with the people you love. This is A.K. Rawlings. The two of them stood in the middle water, the current slipping away quick and cold, the sun slow at his zenith, sweating gold, once in some sullen summer of father and daughter. Maybe he regretted he had brought her. She'd rather have been elsewhere, her look told, perhaps a year ago, but now too old. Still, she remembered lessons he had taught her to cast toward shadows where the sunlight fails and fishes shelter in the undergrowth. And when the unseen strikes, how all else pales beside the bright dark struggle, the rainbow wrath, life and death weighed in the shining scales, the invisible line pulled taut that links than both. A.K. Rawlings. Here's D.H. Lawrence on the fish. Fish, oh fish, so little matters. Whether the waters rise and cover the earth or whether the waters wilt in the hollow places, all one to you. Whether the waters Cover the earth, aqueous, subaqueous, submerged and wave thrilled. As the waters roll, roll you. The waters wash, you wash in oneness and never emerge, never know, never grasp. Your life a sluice of sensation along your sides, a flesh at the flails of your fins, down the whirl of your tail and water wetly on fire in the grates of your gills, fixed water eyes, even snakes lie together. But, oh, fish, that rock in water, you lie only with the waters, one touch, no fingers, no hands and feet, no lips, no tender muzzles, no wistful bellies, no loins of desire, none. You and the naked element, Sway wave, curvetting bits of tin in the evening light. Who is it rejects his sperm to the naked fled in the wave mother who swims and wound, who lies with the waters of his silent passion womb element, fish in the waters under the earth, wet price 
his bread upon the waters, himself all silvery, himself in the element, no more, nothing more, himself and the element, food of course, water eager eyes, mouth gate open and strong spine urging, driving, desirous belly gulping. Fear also, he knows fear, water eyes craning, a rush that almost screams, almost fish voice as the pike comes, then gay fear that turns the tail sprightly from the shadow. Food and fear and joie de vivre without love. The other way about joie de vivre and fear and food all without love. Kill joie de vivre, dawn low. Slowly to gape through the waters alone with the element, to sink and rise and go to sleep with the waters, to speak endless inaudible wavelets into the wave, to breathe from the flood at the gills, fish blood slowly running next to the flood, extracting fish fire, to have the element under one like a lover, and to spring away with a curvetting click in the air, provocative, dropping back with a slap on the face of the flood and merging oneself to be a fish, so utterly without misgiving to be a fish in the waters, loveless and so lively, born before God was love or life knew loving, beautifully before him. They drive in shoals, but soundless and out of contact, the exchange, no word, no spasm, nor even anger, not one touch. And I said to my heart, look, look at him with his head up, steering like a bird. He's a rear one, but he belongs. But sitting in a boat on the Zeller Lake and watching the fishes in the breathing waters lift and swim and go their way, I said to my heart, who are these? And my heart couldn't own them. A slim young pike with smart fins and gray striped suit, a young cub of a pike slouching along way below, half out of sight like a lout on an obscure pavement. Aha, there's somebody in the know. But watching closer, that motionless deadly motion, that unnatural barrel body, that long ghoul nose, I left off hailing him. I had made a mistake. I didn't know him, this gray, monotonous soul in the water, this intense individual in shadow, fish alive. I didn't know his God. I didn't know his God. Fish are beyond me. Other gods beyond my range, gods beyond my God, they are beyond me, are fishes. I stand at the pale of my beam and look beyond and see fish in the outer wards as one stands on a bank and looks in. I have waited with a long rod and suddenly pulled a gold and greenish lucent fish from below and had him fly like a halo round my head, lunging in the air on the line, unhooked his gorping water horny mouth and seen his horror tilted eye, his red gold water precious mirror flat bright eye and felt him beat in my hand with his mucus leaping life 
throbbed and my heart accused itself, thinking, I am not the measure of creation. This is beyond me, this fish. His God stands outside my God. And the gold and green pure lacquer mucus comes off in my hand. And the red gold mirror eye stares and dies. And the water suave contour dims that not before I have had to know he was born in front of my sunrise. Before my day, he outstarts me. And I, a many-fingered horror of daylight to him, have made him die. Fishes with their gold, red eyes and green, pure green and under gold and their pre-world loneliness and more than lovelessness and white meat. They move in other circles. Outsiders, water wayfarers, things of one element, aqueous, each by itself, cats and the Neapolitans, sulfur sun beasts, thirst for fish as for more than water, water alive to quench their over-sulfurous lust. But I, I only wonder and don't know. I don't know fishes. In the beginning, Jesus was called the fish. And in the end. That's D.H. Lawrence. I wish I had written that poem. I wish that someday I have written a poem like that, with that energy. So we're thinking of D.H. Lawrence, who loved this world, a poem for Easter. If you got good bait, oh, here's a little tip that I would like to relate. Many fish bites if you got good bait. I'm a going fishing, yes, I'm going fishing, and my baby going fishing too. And that is Taj Mahal. And we're thinking about water and fish and our relation to the world and our understanding of not understanding. Billy Collins talks about ordering a, a fish in a restaurant. And he says, as soon as the elderly waiter placed before me the fish I had ordered, it began to stare up at me with its one flat, iridescent eye. And once that happens, we begin to question everything. And when we do that, it connects us absolutely to our world and maybe humbles us into wisdom. A poem called The Gardener by Mary Oliver. Have I lived enough? Have I loved enough? Have I considered right action enough? Have I come to any conclusion have I experienced happiness with sufficient gratitude? Have I endured loneliness with grace? I say this 
or perhaps I'm just thinking it. Actually, I probably think too much. Then I step out into the garden where the gardener, who is said to be a simple man, is tending his children, the roses. And it seems to me that that kind of humility is a revelation about the miracles and wonders. Mary Oliver in another sonnet. The authors of history are among us still, and believe me, they believe what they believe as sincerely as the millions who are simply looking for a life, a purpose. Who are the good people? We are all good people, except when we are not. Meanwhile, the forests are filled, the oceans rise, storms give off the appearance of anger. Who despises us and for what reasons? Whom do we despise and for what reasons? Once there was a garden and we were sent forth from it, possibly forever, possibly not. Possibly there is no forever. What's on your mind, we say to each other, as though it's some kind of weight. That's Mary Oliver thinking of these questions. And in a certain way, I'm thinking of William Blake, kiss the joy as it flies and you will live in eternity's sunrise. It's letting go our desire for certainty. We saw D.H. Lawrence engaging with fish and realizing he doesn't know fish. He doesn't know anything about fish and nobody could be thinking of fish more. It's letting go what we call knowledge where we're floating between certainty. And Mary Oliver is referencing the garden of Eden, where we had to leave it. We had to leave paradise because we were insisting on certainty. We wanted knowledge. And we took from a tree. Maybe there is no certainty or limits or end. Maybe there are no boundaries, as D.H. Lawrence is saying. And we find this out when we stand at a bank and we go fishing. Maybe that is why fishing is such a wonderful thing to do with our earth and gardening, working with the soil. The same kind of thing. The miracle of what grows and what lives. And who knew how this all could happen? In these drenching days of mid-spring, reckless and erupting with what is planted and not planted, what has survived against all odds, what is lost and is resurrected because it's Easter. Um, this is what Gerard Manley Hopkins says. Nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep 
down things. So it's inexhaustible. There isn't an end. And we can think about those kind of acts. And my students, my eco-literati in our eco-literature class, the Clark Honors College at the University of Oregon, chose poems that meant so much to them. And one of them is called Are Trees Behind the Fence by Arwa Howard. And this was chosen by Savoy Tapadeli. And it's on this thing. On the day when our trees were cut, on the day when our land was fenced in, they gave me all sorts of excuses. They said to me, your trees are not legal. Your trees are not citizens. No religion forbids killing these trees. I said, oh God, our trees after today won't bloom behind the fence. Our sky after today won't rain behind the fence. But there they are now, putting out new shoots, coming to life again. And I see the beautiful smile tempting me, the almond trees calling me, saying, get angry, be upset, but don't stay crying for me. There they are now, sending me a fragrant greeting every morning. Oh, our trees behind the fence. I thought that being fenced in would suffocate the perfume of your blossom. I thought that being way that autumn came to the trees, it stripped them down to the skin, left their bone ebony bodies naked. It shook out their hearts, the yellow leaves scattered them over the ground. Anyone could trample them out of shape, undisturbed by a single moan of protest. The birds that herald dreams were exiled from their song each voice torn out of its throat. They dropped into the dust even before the hunter strung his bow. Oh, God of May, have mercy. Bless these withered bodies with the passion of your resurrection. Make their dead veins flow with blood again. Give some tree the gift of green again. Let one bird sing. So lovely. And this is a poem written by Zia Asandiar, a student, one of my eco-literati called After the Honeymoon. 2005, shafts of life penetrate the calm surface, the reefs teeming with life and love. They are fish who kiss my legs slyly below tufts of coral ready to with wild arms or tears, they thrash the water, and I watch stairways to heaven topple, scoffing with wisdom, giggling with disbelief out on the horizon. I see you on that island there, living the life surrounded by the ladies of the Indian Ocean, wearing grass skirts and coconut shell bras. You carve designs into sand and climb trees to sleep on clouds. The Alfonso's are perpetually juicy. Dogs nuzzle your calves with gusto. Sunlight warms the sands and bleaches your hair a blinding yellow gold. The trees and waves 
timpanized than one day while digging with the dogs watermelons up from the sand. You thump a hidden chest of epics. Enter Chanturam, Gilgamesh, the Odyssey, countless more, and you know I'm coming. The next time fins flap, voices scatter, I'll scuttle down to the black, drop to my knees dramatically, spread my arms wide and scream, hit me with your best shot, fire away. I always wanted to wear a coconut shell. So that, that is literati. Now, it seems to me, with my finger on the pulse of our generations to come, the students finding poetry and writing poetry, it's all about this sense of hope and mystery and love of what is there in this world. This is Tara Hovet, the Poetry Slam. And trees, if you want to be happy, one thing is key, form a friendship with a tree. No need to feel jaded or tortured if you do not live by an orchard. There lies a treasure trove in each urban garden or campus grove. You could lavish your highest regard on the citizens of your own backyard and uh, has a um, series of couplets that I am going to post on our Poetry Slow Down page. Robert Burns, The Banks of the Devon. How pleasant the banks of the clear winding Devon with green spreading bushes and flowers blooming fair. But the bonniest flower on the banks of the Devon is once a sweet bud on the braids of the air. Mild be the sun on this sweet blushing flower in the gay rosy morn as it bathes in the dew, and gentle the fall of the soft vernal shower that steals on the evening each leaf to renew. Oh, spare the dear blossom, ye orient breezes, with chill hoary wings as ye usher the dawn. And far be thou distant, thou reptile that seizes the verdure and pride of the garden or lawn. Let Bourbon exult in his gay gilded lilies, and England triumphant display her proud rose, a fairer than either adorns the green valleys, where Devon, sweet Devon, have on this theme, 
The Garden of Heaven by Heifetz. From the Garden of Heaven, a western breeze blows through the leaves of my garden of earth. With a love like to hurry, I'll take my knees and wine. Bring me wine, the giver of mirth. Today the beggar may boast him a king. His banqueting hall is the ripening field. In his tent, the shadow that soft clouds fling. The tale of April, the meadows unfold. Ah. And this is translated by Gertrude Bell in 1897. Melanie Waters' garden invokes her granddad. In the corner of his garden, there's a patch he used to keep all to himself to allow nature to creep. There are no trimmed edges or prim proper hedges. He left his earth still and alone, allowed the forces of nature to roam. He said that you don't always have to be tidy and neat. Just watch the beauty of opportunity grow at your feet. He said, just watch the earth produce its own glory. And I watched and held on to his story. My granddad was right, had water and light. Behold the sight. There are poppies and flowering weeds, buttercups and oat-colored wreaths. Daisies gingerly lift their heads. Dandelions roar from muddy beds. Purple thistles and strange grasses. Colors that alight and ignite masses. Dark ferns and heathers. Dandelion clock feathers. Birds foot trefoil. A four-leaf clover. My dad, granddad's story is not over. He may have gone. I may have cried. But the beauty he predicted never died. And the beauty predicted from the work of the poet puts me in mind today of a great poet, our former poet laureate at age 95, Stanley Kunitz. His poems describe his identity in the world as a gardenish creature. And he said in a lament, uh, since that first morning when I crawled into the world, a naked, grubby thing. I found the world unkind. My dearest faith has been that this is but a trial. I shall be changed. In my imaginings, I have already spent my brooding winter underground, unfolded silky powdered wings, and climbed into the air, free as a puff of cloud, to sail over the steaming fields, alighting anywhere I pleased, dressing into deep, tubular flowers. Is it not so? There may be nectar in those cups, but not for me, all day, all night. I carry on my back, embedded in my flesh, two rows of little white cocoons so neatly stacked they look like eggs in a crate, and I'm eaten half away. If I can gather strength enough, I'll try to burrow under a stone and spin myself a purse in which to sleep away the cold. So when the sun kisses the earth again, I know I won't be there. Instead, out of my chrysalis will break, like robbers from a tomb, a swarm of parasitic flies, leaving my wasted husk behind. So he's identifying as a gardener with the caterpillar in all of its changes and stages, and says, here in caterpillar country, I learned how to survive by pretending 
to be a dragon. I lie stretched out on a leaf, pale green on my bed of green, munching, munching. And he shows his intimate knowledge and preoccupation with the drama of the garden, life and death and life again and again and again. And in what ways we are agencies of new life and how we care for the earth. While Kunitz is remembered primarily as a poet, he had a great passion for gardening and uh, has actually uh, written a book called The Wild Raid about being a gardener. Theodore Reck, he says, art is the means we have of undoing the damage of haste. It's what everything else isn't. So it is the poetry slowdown, the poetry where we can see what there is amid all the life. When he says, what falls away is always, he may not mean that the process by which we stop and write a poem is easy, the process that comes from our life and expresses our life and is part of this life, but is a different thing from our life, something made, poet means maker, falling away like gravity. The artfulness is work, he says. There's a point where plainness is no longer a virtue. When it becomes excessively bald and wrenched, you must believe a poem is a holy thing, a good poem, that is. Wait, do you remember Yetki's poem on weeds? Hold on. Long live the weeds that overwhelm my narrow vegetable realm, the bitter rock, the barren soil that forced the son of man to toil, all things holy marked by curse, the ugly of the universe, the rough, the wicked, and the wild. But keep the spirit undefiled. With these I match my little wit and earn the right to stand or sit, hope, look, create, or drink and die. We shape the creature that is I. So the holy poem and the work to create it admit all the chaos. This was Retke's response to Gerard Manley Hopkins' Embersnade, which ends long live we. And Hopkins, who tried as an earnest monk to stop his poems initially, believing they distracted him from his holy devotion, his life purpose of attentive reverence, came to understand and respect poems and the process to write them as gardening, as fishing, as revelation, as insight into the holy, what he called inscape. In Pied Beauty, he describes the beauty of what could be considered weeds in the garden. Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple colors of brindled clouds, for rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim. Fresh fire call, chestnut falls, finches wings, 
landscape plotted in pieced fold, fallow and plow, and all trades, their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter, original, fair, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle, dim, he fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. So poetry slow down. What psychic soil does the poem come from? Is it weeds in our life growing in spite of lack of any formal encouragement or cultivated work of devotion and care and attention? If you write a poem, you're answering a call, but who is calling? Is it our universe demanding that we express it? Is poetry a redemption of humanity if we were put on trial by space creatures for crimes to earth and each other and we got to say a word in our defense? Who would we put up there to speak for us? A poet. Who would our defense lawyers put on the stand? And when we stated the case for leniency, redemption, forgiveness, for slaughter and erosion, cruelty and waste, we could say, but we wrote a poem. I think I'd put up Mary Oliver or D.H. Lawrence or Rumi or Recky or Hopkins. A poem is evidence of listening and paying attention. Gratitude for the gift of consciousness, even what we are conscious of, is sorrow. Deborah Diggs wrote a wild poem, struggling to put life's chaos into order. The wind blows through the doors of my heart. It scatters my sheet music that climbs like waves from the piano, free of the keys. No Notes and notes stripped, black butterflies flattened against the screen. The wind through my heart blows all my candles out. In my heart and its room, dark and windy from the mantle, smashing bird's nest, teacups full of stars as the wind winds round a mist of sorts that rises and bends and blows or is blown through the room of my heart that shatters the windows, rakes the bedsheets as though someone had just made love on my dresses, they are lifted like brides come to rest on the bedstead. Crucifixes, dresses tangled in trees in the rooms of my heart to save them. I've thrown flowers to fields so that someone would come up and know where they came from. Come the bees now clinging to flowered curtains, off with the clothesline pinning anything my mother's trousseau. It is not for me to say what is in the wind or how it came to blow through the rooms of my heart, wing after wing, through the rooms of the dead. The wind does not blow, nor the basement, nor wheezing, nor wind, choking the cobwebs in the hair. It is cool here, quiet, quilt, but unsoiled. But we will never lie down again.
the subject of fishing and gardening, here is our own poet, Charles Tripley, preparing the soil. You need to make yourself a sifting frame regardless of use or weather or grade. Consider two by sixes for the box, though any handy scraps of wood would do if they are long and wide enough and straight. You want a temporary tool for this. Do not waste time in overbuilding it. Just enough strength, ample capacity. A finer mesh will make for longer work without an added benefit. Use coarse. You will need an application of straw, salt hay, to check erosion anyway. Once the topsoil is delivered to you, try to remember as you shovel on the cost of bagged or pre-sifted product, how it might make you unnecessary. Stamina grows as proper shovels full go slipping down the taut crossed wire grid with each increasingly perfect pitch, the shovel slicing through the homely pile soil sliding away, rock strikes on the frame. Soon there is an endless rhythm to it. Shovel, throw, and fall. Shovel, throw, and fall. And you are sleeping. Shovel, throw, and fall. In the end, you find the work is worth it. You may keep the pretty craft of things, the amulet and arrowhead and coins pulled from your newly seed receptive soil. You dig a hole. Give back the little bones. You bury them with all the rocks and stones you burnished on the tension of the screen to mingle in the sweet, protective depth. And here is Charles Trippi's leafy branches. A resurrection poem, I think. Branches grow out of the stump, leafy, actual trees. Look at the weed that you poison each year, the hearty resentment. Follow the stem, feed upon seed. The fishes are walking, cultivate virtue. This is an afterlife now. And here is his inscape in wild flowers. Once, it happens once. No now or then or here. There is no there forever. The coming true of everything at once can only happen once. The flowers and the rock will come to you whole. You see forever after this infinity. You see the fire and the iron and the wood and air, the er stuff in an afternoon away. Here in spring, think in the snow, there in August, thriving in the snow, the rose roots, purely everlasting vetch, maybe stone crop. And that is Chuck Trippy. Merwin has said, and I love to quote this for us, I think there's a kind of desperate hope built into poetry now that one really wants hopelessly to save the world. One is trying to say everything that can be said for the things that one loves while there's still time. I think that's a social role, don't you? We keep expressing our anger and our love, and we hope, hopelessly perhaps, that it will have some effect. But I certainly have moved beyond the despair or the searing dumb vision that I felt after writing. 
I can't live only in despair and anger without eventually destroying the thing when is angry in defense of. The world is still here, and there are aspects of human life that are not purely destructive, and there is a need to pay attention to the things around us while they are still around us, and you know, in a way, if we don't pay that attention, that anger is just bitterness. So our poetry on gardening and fishing reveals the philosopher gardener, and we interweave our experience with gardens with our own mortality and how we know each other and how we love each other. I knew it wouldn't feel right Or do I look like the kind I sleep alone tonight I sleep alone I could get behind you And in the morning we'd be mourning our youth Sometimes it doesn't do to do On the subject of Resurrection, poetry slowdown this Easter day. I'm thinking of the anniversary of 100 years of our national park system in Yosemite Valley, where to think about what Merwin said, while there's still time, we should be appreciating and paying attention to, and I think he's saying, writing about, and reading about this earth and the hope that comes from this act. The Hetch Hetchy Valley, Yosemite's twin, drowned by an act of Congress in 1913. When it was dammed, it created such environmental furor that a few years later, in 1916, 100 years ago, the National Park System was created so that we would preserve and protect our wildness. And the Hetch Hetchy movement to try to uh, resurrect the valley, Yosemite's twin, to me, called for a poem. You knew that it would. It's called Resurrection Engineering, and the epigraph is from Emily Dickinson, The Brain is Wider Than the Sky, and Joyce Kilmer in Trees, in homage to John Muir, poems are made by fools like me. But only God can make a valley. True, it appears that we can unmake a valley. We are increasingly that smart. We can unmake our planet and our growing know-how as we engage this brain of Earth. Human history, a story of bloodshed over water rights, Ruin over ownership of trees, tragedy out of all that is within and atop the land, libraries and homes blazing and fields, salt and sand. Learning our history, do you ever want to say, oh, around 2700 BC or 48 or 1887 or 2003 or any day as trees swoon and land becomes stump and ash, hills are until we end it all.
But the story goes on and we learn. The more we know, a velocity of knowing better. Now we possess a glorious knowledge we cannot make, but we can restore power to restore a valley that once echoed thunder with waterfalls, whose rivers shone in Sierra light, whose massive walls reflected solar radiance, whose meadows of wild flower called red fox and birds and fly. Only God can make a valley. We cannot make a valley. This does not make us fools, but we can be wise with our God-given powers. It is in us to make a valley live. Let the record show our to-do list begins redemption. So that that is my poem, Resurrection Engineering. And I would say that we've reached a new stage of evolution where human history is the agency of hope. The 20th century brought a renewed consciousness of preservation of Earth, keeping what's left. And maybe this century's work, listening to our poets, is restoration. It's imaginative work. It needs the poet and the engineer, the lawyer, the business leader. It's up to us to figure out ways in which every river, valley can be rescued. Our soil, our waters, our mountains and plains, our prairies, our watershed, our seabeds, our coral roots, being brought back to life with engineering feats and genius of wisdom. From Emily Dickinson, engineer of But God Be With the Clown, who ponders this tremendous scene, this whole experiment in green, as if it were his own. If we consider this very earth, its waters, our own, if we claim it as we once claimed land to upend, take down trees and habitat, we can make it once again. In Dickinson's words, tremendous, we can move from the role of fools to the divine work of the visionary who believes in what is possible. This is the point at which a thousand years from now, a child will find history, a story of redemption. You say I took the name in vain I don't even know the name But if I did, well really What's it to you? There's a blaze of light in every word It doesn't matter which you Poetry slowdown. As we conclude for today, but like Earth, we will be back again and again and again. And you can listen to us 24-7 on our podcast produced by Zappa Johns, our Mr. Z, on the Poetry Slowdown Radio Monterey.com with me, Professor Mossberg. Again and again, it is a joy to be with you, and I want to end today with Rumi, writing in the 13th century, A House for the Naked. 
It's late and it's raining, my friends. Let's go home. Let's leave these ruins we've haunted like owls. Even though the blind ones beckon us, let's go home. All the reasons offered by the sensible, dull, and sorrowful can't darken our hearts now. Nor can all this phantom love play, this imaginary paradise, hold us back. Some see the grain, but not the harvest. Don't ask too many hows or whys. Let beasts graze. Come home to the real celebration and music. Shams has built a house for the naked and the pure. Like sunlight upon the earth. I am from you, and at the same time you have devoured me. I melt in you since through you I froze. You squeeze me with your hand, and then you step on me with your foot. This is how the grape becomes wine. You cast us like sunlight upon the earth, and our light, passing through the body as if it were an open window to our source, returns purified to you. Whoever sees that sun says she is alive. Whoever sees only the window says she's dying. He has veiled our origin in that pain and joy within our core. We're pure. All the rest is dregs. Source of the soul of soul, Shams. The truth of Tabritz. A hundred hearts are a fire for you. And you, poetry, slow down in the sunshine of our love. Ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-